Hi, everyone. My name is Jen Malat, and welcome to our latest episode of Essential Antitrust. In this episode, we're going to give you some updates on cartel enforcement, both in Europe and in the U.S., where after years of people wondering whether cartel enforcement is dead, we're suddenly seeing a lot more action. On the European side, it's fair to say that Dawn raids are back. We have seen more than 40 Dawn raids led by at least 15 different European authorities in the first nine months of this year alone. And in the U.S., consistent with the Biden administration's overall approach to antitrust enforcement, we are seeing the DOJ focus on ramping up criminal enforcement, although as we'll talk about in some interesting and slightly unusual ways. So to tell us more about what is happening in the world of cartels, I have three colleagues here with me today to discuss. First, we have Ramya Arnold, who's a senior associate in our London office. Hi. Hi, Jen. Then we have Dominic de Vivier, who's a senior associate in our Dusseldorf office. Hi, Dominic. Hi, Jen. Pleasure to be here. And then last but not least, we have Angela Landry, who is a counsel in our Washington and Silicon Valley offices, but is joining us today from Brussels. Hi, Angela. Hey, Jen. All right. So let's kick this off first by talking about what is happening on the Dawn Raid front in Europe. So Ramya, we said in the introduction, 40 Dawn Raids in 2022 alone, which is a huge number. What are we seeing in Europe right now? Is there indications that this is going to ramp up even more in the future? Or has this just been sort of a one-off spurt and things are going to die back down? So I think there are a few indications that the authorities in Europe are just getting started. So the European Commission, other national competition authorities in the EU and the CMA, we think may be launching more raids in the next few months. In the UK, from my perspective, we haven't seen raids really go back to the pre-COVID levels. But we do expect that, especially with Brexit and its you know, increased scope of powers, that the CMA's activities are going to increase. And we've had statements from the CMA's director of enforcement, who's Michael Grenfell, saying you know, some scary statements about the days of the CMA having to refrain from dawn raids being over. I think there have been a few similar statements from other authorities, like in Germany. So Dominic, could you shed some light? Yeah, sure. No, that's that's absolutely correct. So in Germany, the German FCO conducted 13 dawn raids in the first nine months of 2022 alone. And as you just said, Ramya, the president of the German FCO, Andreas Mund, has been pretty vocal about the fact that the specific circumstances during the pandemic made it very difficult for the FCO. But now all of that is in the past. So they are out there again hunting. And we think there's certainly more to come also from the European Commission because they have made similar comments. So that's really interesting, Dominic. And I think it's especially interesting to hear the point that we have so many authorities picking up on this trend, the Commission, the FCO, the EFTA, the CMA. Ramya, even though this is happening across a lot of different authorities, are there any general trends that we're seeing across all of the European and UK authorities when it comes to Don Raid? I think there are, Jen. I think the key trend that I would draw out is the authorities across the board being even more focused on how they can seize electronic data, you know, regardless of format, whether it's physically located in that country or stored on the cloud. So what we're seeing is that authorities want access not just to your standard email accounts, but also to private phones that have been used for professional purposes, to cloud data that's been stored outside their jurisdiction, to WhatsApp and Microsoft Teams chats that employees are using, and to Office 365 and SharePoint, which can have a really vast amount of electronic documents on them. And in general, these authorities are trying to make this more of a sort of forensic IT operation where they 
copy an image, you know, large swathes of data and take them off site. So really, the key takeaway, I think, is that for in-house counsel and external counsel, advisors need to be up to speed on the precise powers that each authority has in those areas and also needs to be thinking about what limits they can push for to you know, limit access to personal data, because that's going to become an increasing problem with the vast amounts of electronic data that they're accessing. And really, the spotlight then goes on to the company's IT departments who need to be really trained and who need to be match fit in case an authority comes along. And I think from a German perspective, there's a point to add, if I may. So especially on cloud data, there had been rulings by the federal constitutional court that based on a search warrant issued by a German court, only electronic data stored on servers located in Germany could be seized. But that seems to have changed in a way, or at least the FCO wants to take that position since the German Competition Act now contains broader language in that respect since early 2021. And we expect that the FCO will certainly use that to argue that they can now also seize data stored on servers uh, outside Germany which has been the European Commission's position uh, ever since under EU law, because they think that they can copy everything to which the company can actually have access. So this is another point where you can see that Germany is sort of following suit what the European Commission's position has been for quite some time. And maybe while I'm at it, let me mention one one other important trend, because Jen, you asked what we want to make clients aware of. I think one important aspect is that authorities, instead of conducting an actual physical raid, they seem to also increasingly send out even wider formal information requests than in the past. And that is quite tricky for clients for two reasons. Number one, this forces clients to provide information also from jurisdictions where the given authority probably couldn't conduct a physical dawn raid in the first place. They simply couldn't go there, but they are asking for documents uh, which are sort of located in that jurisdiction. And then the second point is doing a raid. The authority normally cannot find all relevant evidence. And that leaves in practice at least the strategic option for a company to still apply for leniency as the company could then still provide some significant added value in addition to what the authority has seized. But in case of a formal request for information, the client just needs to search and then provide all responsive pre-existing documents, hand them over, and the company cannot receive any sort of leniency discount for doing so. So quite a difficult setup. Yeah, that's interesting, Dominic. And I think when we move over to the U.S. part, we'll talk a bit about that kind of subpoena approach, which is much more common in the U.S. where we don't have Don raids. But before we we move away from the Don raid topic, you know, we're in obviously a whole different world than we were a few years ago. And I'm just looking around and it looks like maybe Ramya and Dominic, you guys are in the office. I'm at home. Angela's in a hotel room. What has changed as a result of COVID and, and how Don raids are conducted? Because, you know, you go into a lot of offices these days and there is nobody there. Exactly. That could be exactly the problem that clients are faced with, because there is just this increased risk that the sort of the trained staff that would be on site are outnumbered by the officials that land from the authorities, especially, you know, in the first couple of hours of a raid. And so it means that you have to really revisit the checklists that you know your company has for your dawn raid processes. So having 
your basic first responder checklist flexible that works for a broad range of potentially available people being there on any day from each key relevant department, whether it's legal or otherwise. It means it's all the more important that your IT specialists are available at least via phone if you don't have IT specialists who work on site anymore so that they can answer technical questions officials may have immediately. And again, you know, the focus, is, as I said before, is on making sure those IT specialists are properly trained, given that there's more and more focus on electronic data as the move to home working means people use less of their files and their notebooks, right? But I think the other aspect of it, Jen, on, on, on home working post-pandemic is that there is an increase in the risk that the authorities will actually not only raid the company's premises, but also look at private homes. On the UK side, we do actually have a legal development there, which is that the government in the UK is putting forward legislation that would enable the CMA to do what they call a seize and sift documents from private homes in a raid, as well as having those powers when it comes to business premises. So that means that, you know, if they were doing a raid to a relevant person's private home, they would be able to take large swathes of documents to filter off site if they've got the relevant court warrant. So that's, you know, a push in that direction responding to um, the pandemic, I think. And that's not yet in force, but it's potentially going to have an impact. And in any event, you know, we see that as a potential direction of travel for the authorities. But we haven't actually seen that many examples in the UK of raids of private homes recently. But I think that there are a couple of examples in the EU and Germany. So I think, Dominic, you had one some time ago. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So I attended one some time ago. And what we're seeing, uh, Ramya, as you said, is basically that clients and their executives become increasingly worried about such rates of private homes. And we see why. Because, for example, the European Commission recently conducted its first raid of a private home in quite some time. And after they had done that, they communicated to the public that they had done so simply in response to shift to home and hybrid working. So one point, the second one is that other authorities share very much share that sentiment. And to give another example, only recently a national competition authority raided the private home of a general counsel. In light of that, we have received many inquiries and we recommend to clients to have specific trainings or at least an FAQ document also for in-house counsel and relevant executives so that they are prepped in case uh, such a domestic dawn raid hits not only the company but the individuals involved. And when it then really comes to that, there are several important practical challenges which somewhat differ from a company raid. Number one being that domestic raids are much shorter, simply because there are fewer rooms to search and less data to copy. And at the same time, it will take quite some time for the company's advisors to arrive on site because the search individual might live in a more remote place and in the first place needs to inform the company about the raid, which then informs the outside advisors. So that obviously gives the authority quite a heads up or quite a head start, I should say. And that also means, just from a strategic and risk exposure perspective, that the individual searched will be alone with the officials without any external support for quite some time in a super stressful situation. I mean, just imagine having your family members in the room next door or neighbors being interested in what's going on. That's tense. 
And especially in jurisdictions like Germany or the UK, where authorities can and frequently do impose sanctions against individuals, this is an extremely difficult situation, not only for the company, but also for the individual, who then might react irrationally, might try to somehow obstruct the raid, or potentially even worse for the company, start cooperating in a way from which only she or he can benefit, but not the company. Dominic, maybe just to jump in on that, you know, I think it's interesting that that is sort of a new emerging trend that we're we're dealing with in the EU, because in the US for a really long time, the FBI has routinely conducted knock and talk interviews with individuals involved in cartels in parallel to subpoenas being issued. And, you know, as you just described, part of the purpose of those interviews is to intimidate the person at home first thing in the morning, their wife is trying to do the school run, they're trying to get to work, their neighbors are there. And part of the objective of doing it like that is to sort of rattle someone into saying something incriminating. Or even start cooperating on the spot, right? So this is why it's just super important that the outside advisors of the company still make their way uh, to the premises and try to be there as soon as possible uh, so that at least the company is aware of what's going on. And then, as you say, there are so many practical points to make in that very moment judgment calls to be made that it's just important that people are trained on the one hand and external advisor uh, exactly know what to do and what not to do. And I suppose another point from a UK's perspective is just you need to also think about lining up separate counsel for individuals because of the potential criminal sanctions. And, you know, so that's another thing on the list for practical steps if there is a raid at an individual home. Ramya, Dominic, thanks so much for that whirlwind tour of what is happening on the Dawn Raid side. But Angela, I think we have let you sit quiet for too long. So let's chat a little bit about what we are seeing on the other side of the pond. You know, I think we have been talking for months now on this podcast about how aggressive the Biden administration has been with respect to antitrust enforcement over the past years. You know, at the same time, we've also been talking for a very long time about the significant drop in criminal enforcement actions that we've seen both under the Trump administration and the Biden administration. So those, you know, those peaked about 10 years ago and have been on the decline since then. Now that we maybe are seeing the bottom and an uptick from that drop, what are your thoughts, Angela, on what caused that drop in cartel enforcement in the first place? Yeah, so I think a lot of people think that the drop in cartel enforcement is attributable to a drop in leniency applications. And that's because there's just increased costs and risks associated with leniency applications now versus, you know, when the leniency program first started in the U.S. There's a risk of private follow-on actions. There's a risk of opening yourself up to investigations in other jurisdictions. And then there's also just higher bars to perfecting a leniency application um, in the U.S. and also elsewhere. And so I think a lot of people or a lot of companies have gotten a bit more hesitant to go in and self-report as opposed to previously. Yeah. So, you know, we have companies maybe sitting there thinking, is it even worth it to apply for leniency? This seems really expensive. This opens up a whole lot of potential liability. And in light of that, we have seen the DOJ making some updates to the leniency program. Can you tell us a bit about those, Angela? Do they make leniency more attractive, less attractive? What's the DOJ up to? 
I think they made it less attractive. There are other <laughs> jurisdictions that have, you know, been thinking about ways to to make leniency more attractive so that they can continue to, you know, attract these applications and do investigations and facilitate that. But in the U.S., we saw a recent update to the leniency program uh, that includes some requirements that they're kind of left to the DOJ to decide on a fact-specific basis. So one of the requirements now is that you have to report promptly as soon as you become aware of a violation, you're supposed to go to the DOJ, you know, as soon as you really can. And then another requirement there is to make best efforts to remediate the harm and to come up with a concrete, reasonably achievable plan to make restitution to injured parties. And as I said before, these are both fact-specific inquiries on the DOJ's part, so it's not really clear what they're looking for and what's going to be satisfactory, whether that'll change from one day to the next or one you know person at the DOJ to the next. So I think it's just created quite a bit of uncertainty. I think it's interesting that that's the takeaway from the antitrust bar and from businesses when the DOJ said that its purpose in making these updates to the leniency program was, quote, to reaffirm its commitment to transparency, predictability, and accessibility of criminal enforcement. Yeah, it is interesting. And, you know, if you think about leniency potentially becoming even less attractive for companies, you know, then we have the DOJ sitting there thinking, what other ways can we detect criminal activity? And they've had some thoughts on that front too, right? Yeah, so they're looking for different sources of cartel detection basically now. Uh, One of the most successful, I think, for them has been the Procurement Collusion Strike Force. Um, And this strike force was formed in November of 2019. It's an interagency partnership that includes the DOJ, the FBI, the Postal Service, U.S. attorney's offices, and then some other federal, state, and local agencies. And the whole purpose of it is to detect collusive and other fraudulent activity in government procurement specifically. And You know, it got off to a a bit of a slow start, but we've seen a lot of enforcement actions involving unlawful activity at all levels of government. And this includes one one interesting update, which is a recent guilty plea that the DOJ secured under Section 2 of the Sherman Act for attempted monopolization. And that was for an invitation to collude. So somebody, you know, said, hey, competitor, let's get together and collude. But the competitor didn't accept it. And The DOJ got a guilty plea under that statute, which is the first time that it's done that in over 40 years. Some other sources of cartel detection that have been kind of thrown around are private litigation. There's been some civil cases that have been brought and a lot of public calls for criminal investigations on those as well. And we've also heard some rumblings of the DOJ kind of poking around and asking some questions about these and but we haven't seen any enforcement actions yet from there. And then the other area is merger investigations, which it's not new. It's always been the case that agencies will look into potential criminal violations if they come up in the merger context. Uh, There's an example from 2015 relating to shelf-stable tuna, where there were a couple of companies that were looking to merge. And during that merger investigation, price-fixing conspiracy was uncovered. That turned into a criminal investigation, which turned into criminal sanctions, and then also some civil follow-on lawsuits. 
We're continuing to see that. And more recently, we're aware of the DOJ issuing some CIDs during second request processes where they're kind of looking at industry coziness and seeing if that might suggest potential collusive activity. Yeah, as you say, Angela, that's something that the U.S. has done for a long time coming out of the second request processes. But, you know, as we're seeing authorities all over the world really ramp up the document production requirements in phase two merger reviews and even phase one merger reviews in some places, you know, I think we're also seeing hints of that, including at the ACCC, where they've communicated that they're using data analytics on documents that they get in merger reviews, and they will try to identify potential cartel infringements through those productions. So maybe a you know longstanding U.S. approach that's being adopted more and more in the rest of the world. And you know, I think you you talked a bit about expansion of how we detect these cases, but in the U.S. We're also seeing, you know, a trend in expansion in the type of cases that are treated as criminal investigations. And, and especially the one of those that has been popping up more and more in the last couple of years is the no poach and wage fixing cases. So what is the Biden administration doing on that front? Yeah, so this isn't necessarily a Biden administration update. It was in 2016 under the Trump administration that the DOJ and FTC issued some antitrust guidelines for human resource professionals. And when those guidelines were announced, the DOJ made clear that it was willing to prosecute no poach and wage fixing agreements criminally under the right circumstances. And so that's been something that has been front of mind for a lot of people. This is an expansion of the application of a criminal section one violation that we haven't seen previously. And we've now seen several cases that the DOJ has brought to try to enforce Section 1 against these no-poach and wage-fixing agreements. They haven't been extremely successful quite yet. They lost a couple of jury trials. But there are other cases that are pending, uh, and they've made it past some significant procedural hurdles. And then also recently, the DOJ secured its first guilty plea in another case. So we're seeing some real action there. And it's still pretty early, and we haven't seen any signs of the DOJ backing down. And in fact, after the first jury trial uh, loss, the DOJ said, you know, don't take this as a referendum on our commitment to prosecuting these kinds of violations or our ability to prove these crimes at trial. So I think this is an area where we can really expect to continue seeing action. It's it's also an area, labor specifically, that the Biden administration is focused on even more broadly than in antitrust. So it's pretty important here. Yeah, that, that makes sense, Angela. And certainly there are a lot of politicians in the U.S. that see antitrust as kind of one tool in the toolbox to approach these labor issues that, as you say, are a big priority for the Biden administration and the Democratic Party at the moment. I want to revisit something that you mentioned a minute ago because it's a a bit extraordinary that the DOJ recently had a guilty plea under Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which is the first monopolization-related guilty plea in a criminal guilty plea in over 40 years. And I'm curious, you know, what you think of that case. Is it just sort of a really egregious one-off or is this a new avenue where all of a sudden we're going to have lots of Section 2 criminal indictments? I think it's a really egregious one-off. The DOJ announced that they were going to seek criminal prosecution under Section 2 for monopolization. That raised a lot of questions for businesses and within the antitrust bar about what, what kind of monopoly conduct is the DOJ going to be 
looking at here. And so there's been one case that they've brought so far, and it's this invitation to collude. So basically what happened was this guy went to his competitor and he said, I'll give you a bunch of money if you agree to stay out of my territory and I'll stay in my territory and everything will be great. And the invitee pretty much immediately went and, you know, reported it internally. They reported it to federal authorities and worked towards getting this guilty plea under Section 2. And this is the kind of conduct that we always have told our clients not not to do. Don't invite your competitors to collude. Don't accept invitations. And if somebody invites you to collude, go talk to somebody. And that's exactly what happened here. And usually what the DOJ does in this situation is they, you know, historically have prosecuted this kind of conduct under the wire fraud statute, but here they decided to do it under Section 2, which is, you know, attempted monopolization. So there's no no agreement and you're not meeting that standard under the normal criminal statute that we look at for antitrust violations. So as always, risky to be a criminal, but it's nice to know somebody is attending antitrust training and knew what to do <laughs> when, that, yeah. when that situation arose. You know, it reminds me a little bit of seven, eight years ago, maybe there was a big question about whether AI would be the new cartel enforcement trend and whether algorithms would collude. And there were a couple of cases in you know the UK and the US that involved posters sold, I think, on Amazon. And yeah. everyone said, this is going to be all the cases going forward. And they ended up, in retrospect, being kind of strange, egregious one-offs. And that hasn't really emerged into the trend that people seem to think at the time. But really interesting to have those updates on the, the US, Angela, and, and also from you, Dominic and Romeo, on what's happening in the EU and the UK. But we are out of time today. So to wrap things up, I want to thank Dominic and Ramya and Angela for sharing all their thoughts on what is happening in the world of cartels. And I'd like each of you, before we go, to give me just one takeaway that you hope that clients have in mind when they're thinking about the world of cartel enforcement. And Dominic, maybe I start with you. Yeah, I think it would be be prepared and have good counsel on your side who knows their stuff. How about you, Ramya? Yeah, for me, I think it's really getting to know the ins and outs of the working practices of the authorities and the practical challenges that will be involved in a raid. And Angela, how about in the U.S.? Just because the leniency program here has slowed down a bit, it doesn't mean that the DOJ is letting up on its criminal enforcement efforts. The program's still important, but in addition to that, companies should be on the lookout for investigations coming out of other contexts. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dominic, Ramya, Angela, for those thoughts and for all of your insights on what we are seeing in the world of cartels. I think that is it for us today, and we will see you all next time for more Essential Antitrust.